Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Alan, you were born in right in the middle of the, of the Second World War in the winter of 1941. Um, do you have any recollections of the war? Very much then, yeah. Um, I can go back and remember uh, uh, as a four-year-old on D-Day uh, when the war had finished. V-Day, yeah, I guess. V-Day. Yeah. Day, your your day. father was... No, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll short-circuit this. Your dad was a soldier who fought, of course, all the way through mm. the war. Um, and so... Well, he must have come on, on one of those trips. Absolutely, you know? yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I hope that's he fair, did anyway. Yes. Yeah, that's fair. And literally, um, I didn't see him until I was four years of age. And we had a, a party in the street, as we used to in those days, mm-hmm. when something special happened. And uh, I saw three soldiers walking up from the bottom of our road and some of the women running to two of them uh, on the outside. And the one in the middle just walked straight past me and walked into our house. And I thought, who's that? So I go in the house and see my mother embracing him and this and that. I've never seen this guy in my life before, you know, as a four-year-old, didn't know who he was. And then my mum looking over his shoulder and saying, this is your dad. Uh, I was very, very wary of him, you know, because he was dressed in this uniform and, and a big rifle that oh, he'd he laid down him, on yeah. the floor. Oh, my God. And basically, you know, big black boots that they used to wear in those days. Uh, and I looked at this fellow, I didn't really want to know him because he'd never been around in the four years that I'd been alive and this and that. But, you know, over a period of time, once it finished and he got demobbed uh, and we got used to each other as father and son. I mean, did you, I'm asking a question you may not have the answer to, Alan. Do you think it affects, did it affect your relationship with your father, the fact that you didn't know when you were a kid? Yeah, doubt, uh, no, no doubt about that, Dan. And, I mean, we read now of, of people coming back from Afghanistan and places like that having major problems, you know, with, with their health and stress and all like that, this. yes. Uh, there was no mention of that years ago. That was never mentioned. Now, the, the war had been going on for five years, Incredible, hadn't it? You know, yeah. 1939 to 45, six years. And basically, uh, these people came back probably with exactly the same thing, seeing people killed, you know, where they were fighting and things like this. And it must have affected him because I didn't really get to know him until a few years later uh, when I was getting involved, you know, in school football and things like that. He started to take notice of that. But at the time, uh, he came back, and like most of them at that time, they became very heavy drinkers. Uh, because of the thoughts of the war. They came back to jobs they didn't have uh, and things yes. like that, which was uh, horrendous for them. I never really looked at that till I was later, you know, well, a Well, you're a kid, myself. why would you? Yeah, no. of course, of course. Was it a happy childhood, Alan? Oh, I loved it. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody knew everybody in the street. The doors were always open. And to make the point, this is Notting Hill when it was still a, a slum before it yes, got done absolutely. up. Yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. You know, and if any strangers came, you know, around there, you know, people would come out of their houses and see who they were, you know, uh, and things going on like that. But the kids would play football in the street, you know, you'd have a couple of coats at one end and at the other end of the street. No cars going down the road in those days. So it was just uh, so joyful, you know, to be a young kid growing up at that time. And you were you were good at both football and cricket, Alan, yeah? Could play both, Dan, yeah. I was very, very lucky, blessed in a way, to, to be able to do that. Uh, when the football season finished, uh, you know, we I was playing for the school and things like that. Uh, it would come to the cricket season and I started playing cricket for the school. Uh, and I ended up playing for uh, London Federation of Boys Clubs at Lords once. Went to Lords. Wow. And my first year was captain, uh, you know, of the London Federation of Boys Clubs. Scored 50. On my on my debut at Lords, Lords at Lords, yes. So that, that's kind of, probably a quiz question, Alan. Who, who, who you know who's captain England at Wembley and scored fifty at Lords? I'm mean, serious. <laughs> and the second year, I got bowled first ball. Ah, <laughs> that wasn't too good. Could you could you have been a professional cricketer? Do you think? We well, I, I I was supposed to have had a trial. It was a very very funny story. Uh, a relation of mine called John Murray, who played for England and Middlesex. Oh, the uh, wicketkeeper, batsman. <laughs> he was a wicketkeeper. How was how were you related? Well, he to was him? married to my cousin. Thank got you. me, uh, uh, um, you know, a, a trial at Lords. I turned up. Uh, I didn't have my own pads and this and that, so I borrowed them off the boys' club. I turned up outside of Lords at 15 years of age, uh, standing outside the main gates there, the Grace Gates, and uh, a guy came out, and I was standing for about 15 minutes. I didn't know whether to go in and ask him, and he came out. He said, can I help you, son? I said, yeah, son, I'm here for the trials. He said, not today, son. They took place yesterday. Oh. <laughs> so I missed out. Well, cricket, cricket's loss was probably football's gain. Um, i got to ask you the question I ask all footballers because I'm trying to set an example here. Did you try hard at school, Alan? No. <laughs> I didn't, Dan, to be fair. I, I, I mean, ever since I can remember kicking a ball, that was the only thing I had in my mind, that I wanted to play sport. And, and I was, you know, at that time, blessed to be pretty good at it. We, I should make the point then, as well as playing for the Federation uh, the cricket, you're also playing for London boys. You're good enough football to represent mm. London. And of course, I remember, you know, even as a, when I educated in this city as well, um, that to play for London boys, you had to be a brilliant footballer because they're choosing from millions of schoolboys. You played against Manchester boys. And I'm saying this because it's part of the story if we go forward. Yeah. You remember playing against Manchester boys when one Norbert Styles was in their team. That Jules Clooney lookalike, yeah, Nobby. <laughs> uh, and I can remember playing against when we were 15-year-olds just coming towards the end of our school career at the same time. And there was Nobby. He was no bigger then than he you know, ended up playing. Um, and it was a game, and we played at Manchester City, actually, and he played for Manchester boys, I played for London boys. In our side at that time, another one to make it was Jeff Hurst. And Jeff Hurst was what we, what you call a wing half in those days. It right. wasn't a centre forward. It was only Ron Greenwood over the years later uh, that changed him into a centre forward. Alan, obviously a uh, talented young footballer, plenty of attention. Why in the, in the spring of 1957 did you sign for Fulham? It was a very, very strange scenario, Dan, to be honest. Um, I'd played my last game leaving school and I'd had four or five London clubs opportunities to, uh, to take me. And on the last game, which was the quarterfinal of the English School Trophy, West London boys, and a guy came up to me after the game. He said, um, I'm a scout from Fulham. He said, uh, I understand your favourite player is Johnny Haynes. And I said, yes, he is. He said, would you like two tickets to go to Fulham this afternoon? I said, well, no, not really. I said, I'm not a Fulham supporter. I said, but I love Johnny Haynes. <laughs> I was a Queen's Park Rangers supporter. Uh -huh. So anyway, uh, I went back and a couple of my mates, you know, were, were there. And I said, do you fancy going to Fulham today, one of you? So they said, no, well, no we're not going to go. They said, so I went. 
and I had two tickets and, and they used to have seats around the track then in those days and these two seats were there so I sat down in one of the seats 40,000 people in those days out comes Fulham you know and there's Johnny Haynes leading them out captain of England you know uh, and I only had eyes for him after about five or six minutes the outside left of number 11 was standing on the touchline literally from where you're sitting for me uh, now two yards away yeah literally and uh, uh, he just walked off the pitch and he sat down in this empty seat next to me, and I thought, what's he doing? And then he reached over the back, you know, into the, the uh, players, into the supporters, and he took a cigarette off of a guy that was smoking. <laughs> he had two puffs on it, and Johnny Haynes, 60 yards away, hits this cross-field ball that lands just where he should have been standing. And he walked on the pitch, he had one last drag, put his foot on the, on the, the studs and squashed the, the cigarette out, shouted across to Hainsey, when I'm standing out here, you don't want to pass it to me. When I'm out here, he said, I'm having a fag and you want to pass it to me. So I couldn't stop laughing. So I had to join Fulham Football Club. Okay. I mean, if it was that much fun on a match day, then I wanted to be there. there and in, that's how I went there. In the old second division, and I can, you know, and you're not, you're not exaggerating to say there was 40,000. I can mm. remember being in a very large crowd at Fulham in the mid-60s as a, as a very small boy. Um... And so you joined them. What kind of team was it? You said they had Jordan, Johnny Haynes, but they had some great players. They had, they I had. Could, I can name it now. Macedo was the goalkeeper. George Cohen went on Cup to win the World Cup. Yeah, Jimmy Langley, uh, myself, Roy Bentley was a centre half in had, those days. Yep. Who's now ninety years of age, Roy? A lad called Eddie Lowe. Uh, we had Graham Leggett outside right. Jimmy Hill inside right. Jimmy, the great Jimmy Hill. Yeah. <laughs> Morris Cook centre forward. Johnny Haynes inside left and Tosh Chamberlain outside left. At least four of those players are, or at least five of them are, are literally legends of that club. So it was a great team, albeit. Oh, right. albeit yeah. Um, and so, do you, do you, when you were you made your debut at seventeen against Lake Orient in February of '59. Before that, I take it you had all the usual things. Uh, young footballs weren't cosseted the way they are now. Are, are, oh, are not they? at all. No, no. I mean, were, were you cleaning were, boots and all? When that? I was on the ground stuff, yeah, I would clean the boots and I would in those we had to bang them in, Dan, with a, and with nail a, the a hammer in. and nail them in. And if it came through, you get the boot thrown at you, you know. But we used to dig the pitch. It would take probably a month to dig the pitch and relay it and things like that. We'd paint all the stands and this and that, uh, and we'd put fish oil for whatever we put fish oil on there for to make the grass grow better. That's the first but yeah. then they closed the dressing room so we couldn't get in the dressing room kids so we were smothered in this fish oil so what we used to do the rest of the lads we used to tie a rope around our waist and dunk us in the Thames and hold on because the river was flowing that way and we'd go with it so they would hold on just to so get the fish get, oil off so, yourself yeah just to get it off so we could get on the bus up the top of the road because I got turned off the first time and I didn't want to walk all the way from Fulham into Hammersmith and then get on a train to go to Latimer Road and get off there yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so that's what we did. Um, you, do you remember your debut against Lorient? I do, absolutely. Eddie Bailey was uh, the skipper uh, who would then became one of my coaches at Tottenham. Uh, and uh, he shook hands with Johnny Ains and he turned to the uh, to the referee and he said, Ref, can I ask something? And I was standing about five yards away from him. And he said, uh, is there any swearing taking place in this game, Ref? And the referee said, I don't want any swearing at all, Eddie. And he turned and he went, F in hell, and walked away. <laughs> and that was it. I said, that was my first game. We won 5-2. Johnny Haynes scored a hat-trick that day. Uh, and that was my first game, which was fantastic. And then um, <clears throat> you, you, we often do stories on here where people struggle to get in the team and stay in the team. But there's, no, there's none of that here. From looking at the, at the statistics, you then stay in the Fulham team, yep. uh, you know, become part of that very, very stable group of players. I was, and, and I suppose the build-up to it was when I was, like, literally 16 years of age, I captained the reserves. 
you know, which was ridiculous. You didn't have a 16-year-old kid in his, you know, a teenager, captain of the reserve, where there was men twice my age playing in the reserve team. Sure. So to go into that environment, I mean, Roy Bentley was fantastic. He was like a, a guardian to me. He'd tell me what to do, who to mark, what to do, where to go, and things like that. So that was fantastic. It was a great, um, how can I say, uh, education Playing with these players. Am I am I am I, am I mistaking him? Was he the Roy Bentley who played for Chelsea? Yes, and won the title for England. with Chelsea. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah absolutely. Yeah. You got promoted in 1959. We did. What do you remember about that? Oh, it was absolutely fantastic. You know, to be a, a young kid with the, the you know I was the only one that had a club blazer actually. <laughs> you know, my brother-in-law who was in that sort of game, he, he made a club blazer for me and a Fulham badge on it and things like this. I mean, I was smartest dressed play, player at the at the function, uh, and we had a big. Went through round Fulham, you know, on the coach and things like that, and then we got to Fulham Town Hall, what, two hundred yards away from Chelsea's ground, and we just got promotion, uh, and it was wonderful, you know, to see people. And this seventeen-year-old, you know, never had a clue what this was all about. I just played football and enjoyed it, but you know, to the supporters and everybody else, it was a wonderful opportunity. The contrast between the old First Division of the early 60s and the Premier League of now. Mm. I mean, there are echoes of it. It's happening on the same grounds. Some of the same people are still going to those grounds, but they're very different beasts, aren't they? Oh, entirely. I mean, our, our sort of, uh, they'll they're be coming back, I'll be think, I think, for long, uh, before long, uh, people to get ready for the season coming along now, you know, in the Premiership mm-hmm. and in the Championship. Our first run was we ran from Fulham up to Hammersmith Bridge over Hammersmith Bridge, along the bypass at the river, river, get to Putney Bridge, over Putney Bridge, and then through the park into Fulham. That was our first run every morning. But there were a few people that didn't like that running, you know, when you first got back, and one of them was Toss Chamberlain, and he got to Hammersmith Bridge, and there was a milk cart in those days delivering milk, and it was a mate of his, so he got on the back of that, and it delivered him all the way round to Putney, and he got home about 10 minutes before everybody else, and the manager thought he was wonderful. Yet he'd had after he'd gone, he's gone on a milk cart. Which might, might explain why Fulham was struggling against relegation in those early seasons <laughs> in, in that division. I mean, it was just a, it was fun. I mean, that's, that's really what I went there for, you know, because it was so much fun to play. And, uh, you know, if he got beat, I can, I can remember Roy now, you know, getting in. We got beat one game, I think, before we got promotion and at home. And I got in the bath very quickly for no other reason that, you know, if you're first in, you can have a soap and bath and whatever. Uh, and Roy came in and he had a cigarette on. And he was smoking this cigarette in the bath, you know, and this and that. And he said to me, don't worry about it, son. He said, it's only a game. We've got another game next week. You know, we'd get on with it. And that's what it was like. I mean, there was no, oh, if you lost a game or two games or three games like they do now that you're in trouble. No, it was a, it was a fun place to be, but a great education to learn how to play football. Just we're going to talk in a minute about, <laughs> about you know, you making the England under-23 team at a very young age, under-23s in those days, of course. Just for the sake of the people who are too young to have seen you play, um, how would you describe yourself as a midfield player, Alan? What kind of player were you? Who would you compare yourself with the modern game? Well, I, I mean, there was... I suppose, and I felt very proud of it, actually. Somebody said to me about two or three years ago that Steven Gerrard was very much like your type of player. You know, he was a good tackler, he was a great distributor of the ball um, and, you know, could cover so much ground all over the place, which was what my game was all about. You know, when it came to tackling, I'd like to think I was a decent tackler, you know, uh, and won balls for people. Um, all the quality that you played with, you you then give them the ball and let them play I was and, trying and to, do yeah, it better. I'm trying to explain... People like the Haineses and the Greaveses and the Kais and people like this. Um, 
But, you know, it was a great compliment when somebody said to me that no, I was no, I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think that's far-fetched. I, I think you're a, 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 a terrific general-purpose midfielder. Could run, could tackle, could play. That was the important thing. You could mm. pass the ball. And the only, uh, let's be honest, you didn't get as many goals as Steven Gerrard. No, exactly. Yeah, and, yes. and, but you got some very important goals. We'll I come did. On, we'll come on to talk about those <laughs> as well. Um, for them, I guess the first sign of glory, other than the promotion, of course, it's a great thing that come your way, is that you reached the semi-final of the 1962 FA Cup. Mm, we did, which was, I mean, something I'd always wanted to do, you know, as a kid. I wanted to play in the cup final uh, because literally where we lived in Notting Hill, if the wind was blowing right from Wembley Stadium, you could hear the crowd, you know, on the cup final day. Are you exaggerating or, or could you no, actually hear No, absolutely, them, yeah? oh, yeah. you know, and it was something that every kid in our street, you know, even played with the tennis balls and things like that, I wanted to be one of those players that played in the cup final. I was only able to watch it on my aunt's television, you know, which was black and white in those days, with a great big elongated screen on it to make it look bigger and things like that. Um, and every time I saw it, I wanted to play, do that. And the funny thing about it was, you know, uh, we got to the semi-final and we got beat by uh, Burnley in the semi-final. And in that final, literally, uh, they played Tottenham, which would have been amazing for mm -hmm, me, you know, after mm -hmm. years of, of going to Tottenham. Um and extremely broken, you know, when you lose in the semi-final. You've got so far and you, you're thinking, no, I might never have this opportunity again, you know. And that was a sad part about it. But for Fulham, it was an achievement. In March of 64, um, you signed for the massive fee of £72,500 for Spurs. Did you want to leave Fulham? No, Dan, I didn't. Never a clue. I, I'd, I'd seen um, Dave Mackay about three weeks earlier break his leg at Manchester United. Noel Cantwell. Uh, broke his leg in a game there. And literally in two or three days, in the evening standard, evening news, whatever it was, uh, that um, literally it was going to be me or Bobby Moore that was going to go, because Bobby was a midfield player in those yes. days, the same as me, uh, and literally uh, go to Tottenham you know, and take to replace place. Exactly. Or Dave, yeah. And uh, so I went into uh, Frank Osborne, who was the general manager in those days, and I said, Mr. Osborne, I said, you know, I see in the paper that Tottenham were looking for me. You know, he, no, he said, son, they don't want you. Yeah. He said, they want Bobby Moore. He's a better player than you, son. <laughs> he said, go on, get on with it. Bump, and out I went. So literally, <laughs> we're playing Liverpool about three weeks later. Um, and I'm in the house on Friday night. I used to live in uh, Worcester Park in Surrey. <clears throat> and the phone went, and it was Frank on the phone. Frank Osborne. And he said to me, he said, get over to my house, he said, as quick as you can. He said, I said, Mr. Osborne, I said, big game tomorrow. I want to be in bed by half past nine. He said, oh, no, that'll be all right, son. Come on, you come over here. So I, I drove over to Epsom, <coughs> walked in the door, and he started reminiscing about, I used to carry his golf clubs around the golf course and washing his car when I was a kid on the ground staff and all this business. Uh, and I got to know him very well in that period of time, you know, when, when we were leading up to this. And I said, Mr. Osborne, I said, it's half past eight, quarter to nine. I want to be in bed at half past nine. What are we doing here? He You're said, well, Tottenham, very direct, Alan. Tottenham want to buy you. I said, I thought you told me they weren't interested. He said, they've been bugging us for, for three weeks. He said, so now we've agreed for you to go. So I said, I don't want to go. So like you just done, yeah. he stepped back you yeah. know, from the chair. And he said, you've got to go. I said, no, I haven't. I said, I love playing at Fulham. I said, why don't I want to go to Tottenham? I said, it's the other side of London. I said, I'm playing in the first division, the same as they are. I'm playing with one of the greatest footballers ever, Johnny Haynes. I said, week in, week out. I said, I'm happily married. I said, I live in a little semi in, in Worcester Park. Why do I want to go to Tottenham? 
So he picked up the phone and phoned Tommy Trinder, who was the chairman of, of the football Legendary club. comedian and chairman of Fulham, yeah. And he said to me, son, you've got to go, he said. He said, you know, the Hammersmith end, he said, well, we've got no cover there. He said, we get 15,000 people, he said, stand there. And if it rains, they all get wet. He said, what we want to do is, he said, we want to put a cover over the top of them. And with you being sold, that would cover the cover. You know, they've never, ever named that the Alamullery cover. Yeah, you know, where's the Alamullery roof? Yeah. Very disappointed <laughs> with that over the years, to be fair. And as we were talking like that, the doorbell rang, his wife opened it, Bill Nicholson and Eddie Bailey came in. I was a set-up. And uh, Bill said to me, uh, you know, first thing I want to ask you is, he said, uh, do you want to come? I said, no. So he said, well, that's a bit strong. I said, no, the chairman's told me they're going to build a stand for, you know, uh, at the Amersmith end. So he said to me, he said, can you play right back? I said, no, I can't play right back. I said, I'm a midfield player. I said, and if I've got to go, that's what I want to be. He said, well, Danny Blanchard has had a cartilage operation, can't play again. We'd like you to come and sign for Tottenham. I said, well, I suppose if it's like that, I go, we're playing Liverpool the following day. And he said, well, but I don't want you to sign until after the Liverpool game. Because if you miss the game there, we could lose three points, he said, if Liverpool win. He said, so I want you to go and don't tell anybody about this. So off I go, go back to my wife and said, you know, I've got to go to Tottenham. They forced me to go there. Where's Tottenham, she said. I said, well, it's in North London, a long, long way from here. So I went into the ground. You know, I didn't sleep all night, basically. Got in there, sat next to George Cohen, you know, World Cup winner, and John was sitting the other side of me, Johnny Haynes. And we, we, the first half came along, we were winning 1-0, playing really well. And literally, John said to me at half-time, he said, what are you doing after the game? I said, I'm going to Tottenham. He said, what, Tottenham Locarno? He said, dancing? I said, no. I said, I'm being transferred to Tottenham. He said, don't be stupid. He said, transfer. I said, I'm going there, yeah. So he called the manager over. It was a guy called Bedford Jezza. And he said to him, he said, he's going to Tottenham after the game. He oh. said, what, is that a party? What? I said, no, I'm being sold to Tottenham. <laughs> he the stormed out. No. The manager didn't have a clue. He stormed out into the boardroom and it was like one of those John Wayne films, you know, where they're in the barn and chairs go missing and tables go flying and things like that. And he walked out of the football club at half-time and never came back. Resigned in half-time. Over you. And basically, I got back home. We won 1-0. And there was Bill and Eddie Bailey, you know, standing outside the house waiting for me to come up. I signed the, the, the uh, contract. I was on, I think, 30 quid a week at Fulham and they doubled my, my salary to, uh, you know, 60 quid a week. Uh, I got... Twenty pounds to sign on, you know, as a signing on fee, and I became a Tottenham, a Tottenham uh, player. Both clubs, as you say, are in the first division, mm. but there is a vast difference. I think. Oh, absolutely. Stage. Fulham are having a great laugh and doing well. Spurs yep. have done a double within in two years. Before yep. that, had won the first first British club ever to win a European trophy in '63. Yep. You come into a team full of superstars and with, and with a legendary manager. Very oh, different operation. Absolutely. I mean, I came from a place where I learned how to play football. And then I came to a place where all of them knew how to play football, you know, after winning the double. And that was how difficult it was, um, you know, to take over from a, a man like Danny. And, Ray, um, and Dave wasn't playing then because he'd broken his leg. Uh, it was quite difficult. And it took, I would think, over a period of time, literally six months, for the Tottenham you know, crowd to accept me. Not, the, I wasn't, first, not I, the first, not the last, no, Alan. I wasn't, you know, the Danny Blanche player. Danny was absolute creativity, wonderful player, stroke balls about, you know. Uh, I was more the Mackay type, but Mackay wasn't playing, so they expected me to be one or the other of those two, and I was neither, uh, because they were both, uh, you know, fantastic players. Until we played Chelsea, I'll always remember it, they had a lad called Albert Murray that played outside left. 
And Bill said to me, he said, uh, you know, if the ball's out to Albert Murray, he's good, he's quick and this and that. He said, if he's, uh, you know, he could do with a tackle, he said, in the first five minutes. So literally the ball came to him, you know, and I flew in and I hit him. And literally he did a somersault over the small wall. And, you know, Tottenham lads, like, he fell in the crowd. And literally, I was hurt as well, but Albert didn't play again. They carried him off on a stretcher. And I walked round. I'd done some ligaments, you know. And as I was walking round, one of the crowd shouted out, go on, the tank. Yeah, you know, and, and tank I thought, became your nickname. And Arthur. that was it. I thought, I'm a tank. You know, now tanks and destructible, <laughs> basically. I just probably ruined Albert's career and mine nearly as well. But that's how it came about. And it changed completely from that day, uh, which was absolutely You were established amazing. and you became... I was established and, and became... One of well, loved it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, the, the club actually falls away a little bit uh, in, in the mid-60s. I mean, they couldn't keep up the standards they were playing to at that time. Uh, um, and so it's, it's not too early until 1967 yep. um, that uh, you get your first taste of, of glory. In it. And as you say, as a young boy watching on your auntie's television, he yep. um, wants to play an FA Cup final. The 1967 FA Cup final, apart from being the first one that I really, really remember, um, is a very it's a fantastic thing because after a hundred years plus of the tournament or nearly a hundred years of the tournament there had not been an all London final and no. here we are Spurs against Chelsea in the yeah. cup final I mean they were the, 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 at Chelsea there were a load of kids I mean absolutely and high quality kids you know that played um, and we were uh, the more experienced side and uh, when we got to Wembley you know to play Chelsea Terry Venables had been transferred as well to, you, uh, to Spurs you know, to yeah. Tottenham and, and came in 67 and to play against your old club was going to be difficult for him. You know, after all those years he'd been there since he was a 15-year-old like me at Fulham. And basically, we're walking up the tunnel in those days, which was behind the goal. Uh, and literally, Dave Mackay was so confident of his ability and his quality of football and his strength to play football. We stood across from Chelsea and he looked across at these Chelsea players and with the cheek, he threw the ball up the wall and he started heading the ball up the wall. And keeping it and just doing it. And he went, and all all the Chelsea lads were looking at him, you know. This is before we were walking mm -hmm. out. And literally, he got he got out, caught hold of the ball after about 20 headers. And he looked at it, he said, look, this lot have frightened out their lives of us. He said, we'll do this lot today. And that was Mackay. I mean, we walked out and, you know, to cut a long story short, it brought back memories of being the kid in Notting Hill that wanted to play in a cup final. And win it as well. You know, when you go to Wembley in a cup final, you don't want to lose... Uh, and to win the cup final, I'd achieved, you know, what I set out to do as a kid, which was fantastic. Um, you know, it just brings back great memories. You know? I can see the tears in your eyes. <clears throat> I had new boots as well that day. Uh, and literally, um, the blisters that I had on my feet were terrible. So I, I took my boots off at the end of the game and ran, ran barefooted, you know, on the, on the pitch uh, because I had blisters everywhere. Uh, and in agony, they were bursting as well at the time. But all that went out the window because, you know, we'd won the cup. And that was what it was all about. If you go to Wembley in cup final, on the cup final, you've got to win. Can't lose. You made your debut as a very young footballer um, in 1964 against Holland um, in Amsterdam. Remember that? Yeah, I do, Dan. True uh, yeah. 1-1. Um, I think, I'm not sure if Jimmy Greaves scored that day. But Drew 1-1. And I, I, as much as I can remember... Uh, it was in the Olympic Stadium there, and uh, You're correct. Uh, Nobby was injured, uh, and I didn't play particularly well. And it wasn't till literally three years later, you know. You don't you don't play for three years, which means um, that you missed the 1966 World Cup yeah. squad, 
for a player, when you make your debut in 64 against Holland, you must think, I must have a good chance here of being in the World Cup squad, if at least possibly the team, yeah. for the World Cup. What happened? Um, when it came to it, they, they, they had a, a squad of 40 at one stage. This and I, I was in that. This is around to This is leading yeah. up to it, up to 66. I was in that, um, in the get-togethers at uh, Roehampton when we used to get and train there, you know, with uh, and the, the first team would train with the under-23s and things like that. So I got involved in that. But when it came down to the final 22, 24, whatever it was in those days, um, we had people like Nobby. Uh, we had people like Gordon Milne that played for Liverpool, you know, outstanding midfield players, you know, for their clubs. And basically, I was the third one in, of that sort of era, and I was left out. Very, very disappointed, like everybody should be, you know, if you've got a chance of playing the World Cup, playing it and enjoy it. Um, but, you know, I, I, a bit of luck came my way, literally, you know, a, a year later after 66. Um, we got to the Cup final in 67, which we've spoken about. Mm -hmm. And on the Wednesday... <laughs> After, because the cup final was always played in the last game of the season. Mm -hmm. On the Wednesday, uh, the Man United players were going off to Australia on tour, and Nobby was going with them. And I got included with John Hollins uh, of Chelsea, you know, after the cup final. Uh, it was John's one and only cap, bless him. And uh, we got called in to play against Spain. And I had a game which I thought was, you know, very good for my second game after three years. Mm -hmm. And uh, from then on, for the next sort of four or five years, I kept Nobby out the side. Absolutely. Uh, a regular in the side, um, which means that, of course, by the time you get to the 1968 European Championships, you're very much in the team. A weird old tournament because, uh, if I got this right, the qualifiers were the home internationals mm -hmm. against um, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. And then there was the quarterfinals, uh, which were two-legged, and so on. Um, the qualifiers themselves, England won, won that group of the ho home nations. And again, I'm trying to get young people to imagine what went on here. The away game in Glasgow, you played in front of 130,000. <laughs> I, um, I mean, it was amazing that day because literally getting to the ground was a nightmare. Uh, because of all well, the Scottish point, Scotland had a hell of a team then oh, as well. Oh, they did, yeah. me, yeah, did have yeah. a good Law, Baxter, etc. Et yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, you look at them and you say, so, well, I mean, they've got some good players. Going to the game, as we were going, literally going through the, the heart of Scotland, um, and there was like cups and things like thrown at the coach and everything else because it was the England coach. Traffic was building up and leading up to Hamden at that, that, in those days. I mean, it was absolutely unbelievable. It was a fabulous stadium to go and play in front of all these people. And Borley, of all people, who was the, the, the joke maker of everybody, uh, Alf said to us, look, be careful. He says, you know, they've got literally 150,000 people, probably at the outside 10,000 English supporters. So there's 140,000 Scottish supporters there. Don't wind them up. <laughs> Bawley, like he always did, you know, he goes walking towards the supporters of, of, of the end that they were at, literally, and stirs them up, starts yeah. them going. I mean, and like they were throwing things on the pitch at us and things like this. And in the end, we had no sort of warm-up or anything. We came off and got in our gear and went out, you know, when, when it was time to play. Got a 1-1 one, one draw. 1-1 one, one draw up there, you know, which wasn't bad at all. No. Uh, and uh, I think Alan Gilzine came on at that time as well and, uh, you know, playing with me at Tottenham. And as he came on, I said, good luck, Gilly. And he called, the biggest swear word you can think of, he said in my ear, because he was a Scotsman and didn't want to lose. Um, that takes you into the, these weird uh, sort of uh, knockout matches. It wasn't held in one place, you know. So you beat Spain in the uh, 
who were, I think, champions of Europe at that time. You beat Spain in the quarterfinal. Yep. And then uh, we play Yugoslavia. England played Yugoslavia in the semi-finals of the 1968 European Champions Championship. What do you remember about that, Alan? Everything, Dad. <laughs> well, why don't you start with you becoming the first English player ever to be sent off in an international well, match? Well, you know, I blame the Yugoslavs for that because, basically, they kicked lumps out of us throughout the game. I mean, over-the-top tackles, whatever they had on those studs wasn't very nice because every time he went into a tackle, he came away bleeding, you know, from some wound or other. Mm -hmm. And literally, with a minute to go, we're losing 1-0 and, and we'd had enough of it, basically. And I was on the halfway line facing my own goal. Bobby Moore knocked me the ball and he shouted up your back, so I knocked it straight back to him. And then this fellow uh, came down the back of my left leg, my standing leg, and what he had on his studs, I don't know. Uh, but it, it, there was... Two or three great holes, you know, there. Still got the scar. A man called Trivich. Trivich, I'll always remember him because if I ever meet him, I'm going to run him over, you know, <laughs> after all these years. Good for you, Alan, yeah. And, and literally turned round and accidentally kicked him in the netherals. Yeah. And literally, he went down like a sack of spuds, as they would. Referee was standing literally, you no, know, from the distance you are from me, two yards. And he should just show me the red card. And as I was walking off, I thought, what have I done? You know, the first person ever sent off playing for England at senior level. Um, and I heard some footsteps running across the pitch. It was a bit wet. And I thought, well, if I've given him one once, uh, there must be one of their players chasing me. And it was Nobby Styles. And Nobby got on me. He said, come on, mate, get off the pitch. He said, your first player ever sent off playing for England. Thanks, Nob. I knew he'd rub it in, like, you know, as it was going. I mean, to be the first to, to do something like that, you know, I felt I've let the side down, even though there was only a minute to go. Um, I've let Elf down. England are champions of the world. Champions of the world, you know, still before we got to the World Cup, you know, in 70. And literally uh, every supporter that was there I'd let down as well. Um, so literally Nobby coming up to me and sort of putting his arm around me and saying, come and mate, get off the pitch quick, you know, uh, after being the first man sent off, Elf will go absolutely crackers. And then I said, Nobby, I can't believe this. Like, you know, the rival we've had since we were kids. And, you know, this is me walking off and chatting mm -hmm. to him. And he said, well, I'm not doing it for that. He said, Elf will think I'm a terrific fellow. I'll get a game <laughs> next match, he said. And, and he did. He got a game next match. But as we got into the dressing room, he starts taking my boots off and this and that. And, and we could hear the studs coming down, you know. And I jumped in the big communal bath. And literally, I felt a hand grab me by the hair and lift me from under the water. And it was Elf. And he said, I'm delighted that somebody has kicked those so-and-sos when they deserved it and dropped me back in the water. And I got fined 50 quid you know, for being the first man sent off playing for Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Alan, we're, we're, we've just lived through a fantastic World Cup in Brazil, um, and many people are saying one of the greatest World Cups ever. The one that rivals it is Mexico in 1970, the arrival of colour television, a very sunny tournament, uh, Brazil in their beautiful uh, mm. yellow shirts, England a fantastic team, among the favourites to retain their title. Tell us about the build-up. Tell us about the tournament, Alan, in which, of course, you, not Bobby Moore, not Jeff Hurst, you are the England player of the tournament. Tell us about, about 1970 in Mexico. Well, we played um, in 60... We went, we went to 69. We did a trip to South America. So we played in um, Uruguay. Mexico, Uruguay and Brazil. I've got That's the, the, yeah. They were the three yeah. games. So we, wow. did, so, we, so we had something to do with altitude, heat and things like this. Yeah. And we got there sort of, you know, sort of four weeks before the competition started. Uh, and we nestled in and we got used to the uh, the heat and the altitude. Then we went down to Colombia and played Colombia and we beat them 5-0. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. You go to South America and beat a team, you know, that good 5-0. And then we went on to Ecuador and we beat them 2-1. And then we came back to Mexico and played a Mexican 11 uh, and we beat them as well. So you're looking at it and you're saying to yourself, hey, we, you know, we're in good form and what's taking yeah. place. And at that time, that four weeks beforehand, uh, we'd got used to the heat and the altitude as well. The group in the World Cup in 70 was Romania and Czechoslovakia. Um, but the game that everyone remembers was the other group game where um, the champions of the world, mm. England, I like saying that yeah. phrase, took on Brazil. Um Arguably the best side has ever won the World Cup. What about that game? I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a better side than them. You know, you needed two footballs actually, one for them to play with and one for us to play with. Because when you got it, you know, you, you didn't want to give it to them. And when they got it, they never gave it back to you. Pele, Gerson, oh. Tostao, oh, Jairzinho, oh, yeah. Claudio Aldo, Rivellino, oh, Carlos Alberto. Yeah, all, all names that... that, you, that you know, reverberate you, down the ages. Yeah, I mean, you can remember when you play and to play against And it was them. a great game of football too. Oh, it was terrific. If, if, you know, I mean, get it, because I've got one at home, uh, a DVD of, of the 70 World Cup, mm. and literally watched that game over and over. And it was... Probably one of the best games of football I think I've seen, even though it was only a 1 0 win for mm. Brazil. But the quality of player uh, and the quality of ability to play in that game was absolutely. Did you play well yourself, Alan? Uh, yeah, I think I played reasonably well. I had the job of marking the great man again, Pele. Yeah. You know, I'd played against him in 69, and Alf said to me, you know, follow him everywhere he goes. And he said exactly the same thing. He said, do what you did the year before. He said, "If we lose him, and they we uh, uh, if they lose him, and we lose you, we've got a great chance of winning." How did he get free then for the head of Gordon Banks' save? Well, it was the one time I wasn't marking him. <laughs> that was the thing about it. And uh, it was such a great player that he was, and a lovely man as well. Um, and literally that day on on that game, uh, you know, when uh, I could see it now, Jezino plays it down the line. Uh, sorry, Carlos Alberto plays it down the line with his right foot. Gets into Jezino, who was quick, very, very quick, but like Gareth Bow, actually, in a way. He goes past Terry Cooper, crosses the ball. We all move across naturally. You know, Bobby Moore moved across, Brian LeBone moved across. I left Pelly on the far post with Tommy Wright. Tommy Wright from Everton used to play right back. Mm -hmm. And Pelly, the ball, is there, and he's like on a trampoline. And he's up there, and as he heads this ball, he's shouting, Goal. 
and Gordon Banks went from one post to the other, eight yards wide, and he gets the minute fingertips on the top, rolls it up just over the crossbar Incredible, onto the it? top netting, and all the Brazilians thought it was a goal. And literally, as Banks is laying on the floor, number four, myself, walked up to him, patted him on the head and said, why didn't you catch it? <laughs> I can't tell you what words he told me, Dan, coming back on the radio. Let me ask you, there's a very famous picture at the end of the game of uh, Pele and Bobby Moore swapping shirts. Yeah. Whose shirts do you get? Do you, can you remember? I, I, I got his shirt in 1969. Yeah. <clears throat> when we played at the American R. Uh, okay. yeah, 200,000 people. The quarterfinal is one of the most legendary games also in the history of English football, when England lose the World Cup that they gained four years earlier in 66. Very small ground. It was in Leon, wasn't it? Yeah. About 25,000 mm. people. Um, Alan, England were 2-0 up. You scored. Martin mm. Peter has scored. What do you remember about that game when England eventually succumbed in the World Cup? Literally all of it, to be fair. I mean, it was the, for me to be in that position to score a goal, you know, sort of eight yards from goal, was very unusual because I didn't used to you know wander that far up front. Mm-hmm. More so, uh, more so, sitting in front of the back four. Um, but it was you know I mean it was great the first goal and only goal I ever scored. And then Martin scored Martin uh, Martin Peters you know to make it two 0 And Beckenbauer you know smashes one in, goes past me and smashes it in the back of the net. We all know what happened. Germany come back, win three two. It's part of establishing the legend of German football, isn't mm. it? That they never beaten that that game is the one yeah. you think wow. That, that's where that perhaps was established. England came home, and I think it's fair to say, Alan, that uh, your international career came to a kind of, very quickly came to an end, yeah? Only four more games for England. Let me ask mm. you two questions. Could England have won that World Cup in 1970? Yes, they could have done. Yeah. Good enough. Uh, Elf said that uh, we're sitting around afterwards having a glass of champagne when it was all finished, <laughs> and he said he thought they were a better squad in 70 than what they were in 66. I would say we, we were, at that time, winning 2-0. Probably if I'd have got closer to Beckenbauer, instead of you know, just jumping past me and, and knocking the ball under Peter's body, uh, that I would have blocked it and should have blocked it, to be honest. So I'll put my hand up for that. The other two goals they got, I mean, the sealer goal was, was a complete fluke. The back header, yeah. Goal, back yeah. header, over Catty's head, into the back of the net. And Muller, uh, in extra time, great chip. Uh, going across the goal, gets up and volleys the ball in the back of the net. We shouldn't have lost the game being 2-0 up. We you should have been more it, resilient. But you will still have had to beat that great Brazilian team. So, you yeah. know, that's one. The second question, Alan, and the last one for this section. Do you think you should have had more than 35 England caps? Um, I, I think that break between 64 you know, to 67 was that's where I should have got more caps. But then Elf made the decisions uh, and I never got the caps. But of, of all those 35, Dan, I'm extremely proud. Uh, and it's something I achieved as I wanted as a kid to be an England player and I became an England player so I can't argue about it and that's immediately followed by I think the glory years of your time at Spurs whereas captain of the team you know, they win trophies in 1971 1972 and 1973 the League Cup in 71 the UEFA Cup in 1972 and the League Cup again in 1973. It was a terrific team, a team that always felt it was in with a chance of winning every game um, because it had arguably the best goalkeeper in the world um, at the time <laughs> in the form of Pat Jennings. And why don't we talk about that period of Spurs' history and let's, let's talk in, in the company of the great man. It's a hello to Pat Jennings. Good evening. Hi, Pat. Uh, hey, Al. How you doing? Yeah, not bad. Um, I, I love the depth of that voice. Uh, listen, Pat, um, t- talk to us uh, about that time in, in the early 70s when Spurs were winning trophies every year um, and Alan Mullery was the captain. Well, I was lucky to play with a couple of great captains in my time. Uh, I had the great Dave McKay and then the great Alan followed Dave. 
and uh, both of them the led by example unbelievable captains what was what was Alan's great strength as a player and a captain Pat just all round ability and to get the best out of the other players I mean he led by example he you know he could throw players and tackles and he could he could pass the ball he scored goals he could do everything as a record there proves and Alan, um, just uh, he's probably too modest to say it, and, just, and of course this programme is about your life, but it, it is fair to say that a team that has a goalkeeper like Pat Jennings is, is in every game that they play, isn't it? Uh, he's the best thing since sliced bread, Dan, to be fair. Uh, when he came, he came a little while after me. You know, I arrived in April, uh, 64, Pat came in the summer. Uh, to see this young Irish lad that had played at Watford for a short period of time, um, I thought he might have been a little bit homesick, you know, but he he matured into being uh, and is still regarded, in my mind anyway, as the best goalkeeper as has ever been. OK, well, let's talk about the, the triumphs you both shared. Um, the 71 League Cup final was against Aston Villa. Um, I th- well, they they were they were second they division were side second then. division side at the time, yeah, weren't they? What do you remember yeah. about that game, Pat? Yeah, I mean it was uh, we were surprised, you know, that they 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 got to the final. To be fair, and I tell you what, it was a very close game as well. Uh, you know, when you look at it, I mean, Big Chiv got both the goals. But they were late on, weren't they? Late on, yeah. And, um, you know, they had a few decent players. Big Andy Lockhead played for them. And, you know, if you ever came across Andy, oh dear. Especially with Pat as well. If Pat was going out for goals, you know, he'd end up on his backside if Andy Lockhead hit him, you know. <laughs> but he'd give as much as he got, you know, in those days. But they were a decent side at that time. And... Uh, um... Did you, Pat, did you think when you won that trophy that it would lead to greater things as it did the following season? Uh, well, no. I mean, when you had a, the, the nucleus of a good team there, we'd won the Cup in 67. And uh, then that was the next win. And uh, we went on then to the 72 to the UEFA Cup. And I mean, uh, I say the only reason we won that was because Alan came back. He had gone off to Fulham after an injury uh, to get back to some sort of fitness. And Johnny Pratt got injured with us. And uh, I think we're playing at Ipswich on the Saturday. And uh, Bill Nick was straight on the phone then to bring Alan back. And, of course, we went out to the great AC Milan and Alan scored a great goal on the night to uh, to earn a draw for well, us. Let, let me just wind this back a little bit. Thank you very much, Pat. The uh, the, this, the 71 as you won the League Cup. 72, therefore, you're in the UEFA Cup, which was then a terribly difficult competition to win and very prestigious um, because only one team were playing in the Champions League. So you had the second-best team, the third-best team in every country in Europe in it. Um, I remember the games very, very well myself. Uh, a 15-1 aggregate win against Keflavik of Iceland, um, which has actually, both of you will remember this, I think one of the nicest thing uh, I ever remember at White Hart Lane um, was Spurs were 9-0 up and Keflavik got a corner and the entire crowd rose and chanted Keflavik, Keflavik, Keflavik. <laughs> I thought that was very nice. A narrow victory against Nantes of France, Dynamo Bucharest and UT Arad, um, uh, and then the semi-final, as, as, Je- uh, as Pat was just saying, you had gone away to Fulham to get some fitness after an injury, um, and then AC Milan, um, a tremendously powerful team in those days. What? And you you scored in the San Siro, Alan? I did. Uh, um, <clears throat> I mean, it was a a lovely time, Dan, to be recalled. You know, after being injured and uh, and playing against them at White Hart Lane, uh, where we won two one. Steve Perriman uh, got uh, you know uh, the goals then. And literally to go to Milan, and we were in Milan, which was a very unusual, three, four days before we played them. Uh-huh. And we stayed at their training camp uh, and trained there. 
Um, and going to the ground again, you know, enormous support there. I mean, fantastic from our lot. But, you know, playing in front of 80,000 people in San Siro, which I'd done previously, I'd played there. Uh, but, I mean, this was really something special. And the game went on and we were getting a bit of stick and everything else like that, trying to keep the ball and calm them down. And then Big Chiv knocked the ball for about 25 yards. I was out from goal and I just threw my right foot at it and it flew in the top corner. I mean, it really was a... a a Pulitzer that woof and it was in and in goal was Carlo, Carlo Cudicini's father is that right yeah yeah so it was um, it was past him I scored a goal past his dad and literally uh, I mean they, they started to play a bit and then Phil Bill gave away a penalty uh, and it was 1-1 so the battle be- before the end of the game you know we needed Pat at that time to hold on to everything we had uh, and we got through and they wouldn't let us off the pitch you know, they kept throwing all the cushions on the pitch at us. Yeah. Uh, but it was a wonderful evening. And then that takes us to the final. And I'm going to ask you, Pat, this question. The final, as it turned out, having played, you know, all these great continental sides, particularly Milan in the semi-final, it turned out that the other team that had made their way into the final was uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Looking, uh, yeah. looking back now, was it, was it actually, did it take some of the magic away that it was another team from the top level of English football? Well, no, not from our point of view, because, I mean, Wolves were a great team at the time. And uh, I mean, it, it, ideally, I suppose it would have been nice to play AC Milan in the final. But I mean, the fact that we defeated them semi-final, and then we knew that we were really facing a tough match against Wolves. So I mean, that was the important thing at the end of the day to come out and win it. And uh, we done the business away from home at Wolves up at Molyneux, and then came back to Tottenham and drew one each. And uh, we had our boss, Bill Nick, Bill Nick, at that time was total perfectionist. And the only one I've ever mentioned, well, the only one I've ever heard talk back to him was Alan <laughs> on our behalf. And I mean, I, I know Alan had total respect for him like the rest of us did. But uh, the night we beat Wolves, or the night that we, we won the, the, the UEFA Cup at Tottenham, uh, we were swigging champagne in our dressing room and Bill Nick came in. He said, I've just been in next door to tell... Wolves are the the, the the best team lost on the night. So yeah. <laughs> that was typical of Bill, you know, total yeah. perfectionist. And, oh. I mean, over the years, Alan was the only one I've ever heard uh, talk back to him. We had, we, we had total respect for him as well, and Alan had, but Alan often took the player's point, uh, point of view and, and made his point. Bill would have come in after match road, actually won maybe two or three, and Bill wouldn't be happy with the performance, and Alan would always say, I would, on occasion, say, Bill, the problem with you is you're never happy. Well, he actually told me that one stage they came to blows. <laughs> Listen, Pat, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you very, very much indeed. Um, Pat Jennings there. Legendary, Cheers, big course, man. Legendary Spurs goalkeeper, um, one of the greatest goalkeepers ever walked the earth. Alan, did you know it was going to be your last game for Spurs? No, Dan, I didn't. Uh, big surprise, finished the season. Uh, you know, we Europa Cup winners. Uh, came back for pre-season uh, and after a couple of days you know, I sat next to Bill at Chesant where we were and he said I'm thinking about bringing in another midfield player and I said well good Bill I said he won't take my place but you know yeah. that'll be good competition you know and he said no no he said I've had a lot of inquiries about you he said you know um, and I think it may be time that you uh, you moved on you said there were a weird ending to your great career at Tottenham and I know there were a whole lot of clubs um, who were in for you. The list here, you may know more. Stoke, Nottingham Forest, Leicester, West Ham, Crystal Palace. 
and Fulham. Um, why did you go back to your old stamping ground at Fulham? I was promised, Dan, that after four years, if I signed a four-year contract, I'd be the manager of Fulham. And you want your interest in me? And manager, I was very yeah. interested in, you know, the coaching side of it yeah. afterwards and things like that. And, and to go back and, and manage Fulham, coach Fulham, um, you know, it was that lovely club and I knew yeah. you know, masses about it, what it was, and it would have been a joy. So basically, I was offered better money to go elsewhere, but with this job, you know, after four years, I, I'd be looking forward to it so much. So you went back to Fulham, who were then in the second tier of English football. Um, how Had the club changed much since time you had been Not been really, no. I mean, it, the same sort of mentality, you know, if you went out and you played well and you won games, they'd be looking forward to that. If you didn't, you know, there was no panic. Uh, you would stay in, in the second division, you know, if it was. Uh, basically, you were never going to get back to the big league because we didn't have enough good, good players at that stage. But there were some celebrities that turned up in football, that turned up to a football club, which made it even more interesting. Who, such as who? Bobby Moore. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, the uh, how did that happen? How did Bobby well, Moore he, arrive he, at Fulham? He came to me, Stocky, and he said, uh, he sat me down in his office. Is that what you call him? Sto oh, Alex yeah, Stock, the, Alex the manager, Stock, yeah. manager. And he said, uh, he said, how well do you know Bobby Moore? I said, I've been sleeping with him for five years. Okay. I went, what? <laughs> I said, no, with England. I said, we're sharing a room, like, you know. So he said, um, well, he said, we've got a chance to sign him. And he said, do you want to go over to West Ham and do it, would you? <laughs> so I said, yeah. So they gave me all the forms and the contract and everything else, you know. So I got in the car with the secretary at the football club, drove over to West Ham. There's Moro in there having a cup of tea. And I said, you're right, mate. He said, well, yeah. He said, I've fallen out a bit with Ron, you know. He said, and a bit upset about it. I said, well, look, we want to sign you. I said, there's your contract. That's what you're doing. This and that. But you're, said, just, you're just a player, Alan. I was, <laughs> absolutely. And I said to him, I said, look, if you want the next two years or three years that you want to play, if you want a bit of fun, come over and play for us, you know. And he said, OK, I'll do it. Bump. And he signed the forms and said, I took it back to Stocky, Stocky, then bump. he's now telling the world that we've signed Bobby Moore, you know. And I always remember his first game. His first game was against Middlesbrough in the Freight Rover Trophy, 67th round, you know. I mean, it was absolutely unbelievable. We're 4-0 down after 20 minutes and he picked the ball out the net. And we're walking back towards the halfway line. Jack Charlton was the manager then of, of Middlesbrough. And he, and he said to me, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. He said, does the goalkeeper ever use his hands? <laughs> oh. you know, and, I mean, poor Peter Miller that was, but bless him, he, he did use his hands yes. and, and you know, really got us to a cup final you know, a couple well, of years later. Who, who else was in that Fulham team then? There was you and Bobby Moore. There was a lad called Les Strong, who yeah. played over 600 Very good games. tricky winger. Les yeah. Barrett, who was a, a decent player. Jimmy Conway played yeah. in goal. Peter Miller was in goal. Uh, John Fraser played right okay, back. So you know, the you two could... of you were the, the standout sort of celebrities in the, in the, in the team. Mm. Um, you were still playing very well Alan I mean I'm going to come I mean it's, it seems incredible to me that you know we, you're, you're past your England career past your Spurs career in the, in the course of a very short time you're going to be footballer of the year <laughs> you're going to be in an FA Cup final and you're going to score the, the goal of the season as I said Alan you didn't you didn't score a lot of goals but they were all important and were all spectacular yeah and uh, you do get a bit of publicity with that Dan don't yeah. you you know at, at the respective times yeah it's I mean, I'm fascinated now because in 74, there was nothing like the uh, technology there is now. And now it's on YouTube, it's on yeah. this, it's on that, you know. Well, people can see it. And, it? and they can see it, you know, from, from years gone by. The you only gave one it a fair that, old whack, Alan. Yeah, and those the years gone by, those that don't recognise it, I, it, 
my six uh, six year old grandson, who says it's not you, Granddad, no scoring that goal because he gets it on his on his iPhone, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and and I said, why is it not me? He says you're not wearing any glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that that was in 73-74. And the following year, I think it's one of the most romantic stories perhaps in, in, in the FA Cup, which is full of romantic stories. That Fulham team with two old codgers, Mullery and Moore, in it, um, bewilderingly, and after one of the longest journeys I think any <laughs> Cup final team can ever make, get to another All-London Cup final um, against West Ham. But to get there, I'm just counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten... 11 matches to get to the final, including mm. four, three against Hull and four against Nottingham Forest. Yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable. What know. happened against Nottingham Forest? Well, Nottingham Forest, we, we uh, played them at our place in the first uh, game. Zip, zip. Uh, and uh, we drew the game. And then we went up to uh, Forest and Cluffy was managing them. And we drew again there. And we went to spin up the coin, you know, see whether we play at full or yes. And Cluffy wouldn't have it. So we picked another place to go and play, and we drew the third game, and then the fourth game we played at Hull City. I mean, there was about five thousand people, which are our supporters, and five thousand Nottingham Forest supporters. The rest, I mean, it was bare, and we end up winning the game after four games because Cluffy wouldn't play at home in a way like we had before. Yeah. Um, and uh, you then uh, beat Everton in, in the round of five. Oh, that was marvellous, Everton. At, yeah. at, at Goodison? Oh, at Goodison Park. I mean, they were a good side then, you know, uh, Everton. And to win 2-1, two, two, I think it was. Viv Busby scored the goals, uh, who had a terrific day that day, Viv, uh, and did very, very well. And to beat them on their own patch. And then we were in the dressing room afterwards, and they're doing the FA Cup, literally draw at quarter past five. The draw comes up, and the one place you don't want to go to is Carlisle, of all places. And who gets Carlisle? Fulham. <clears throat> we end up going there. We never won a game at Carlisle to save our lives in all the years I've been going there. And we get up there, and Peter Miller, who... You know, Goalkeeper, yeah. He was in goal, and he played them himself. I mean, they were he was absolutely brilliant, Peter. He saved save after Big save. Big blonde fellow, wasn't he? Yeah, good Big goalkeeper, lad, yeah. You know, and literally, I mean, Les Barrett had one shot, miskicked it, and it went in the back of the net, and we won 1-0. And what's the feeling, Alan? I mean, you're a second division team um, with two very star players, but not a star squad or anything like that. I guess, and, and late in your career, you think, oh, goodness, we've got a chance to go to another cup final here. <laughs> Absolutely. And Bobby Moore, I presume, just as excited? <laughs> well, equally as excited, yeah. I mean, we get drawn in the semi-final against Birmingham City uh, and uh, Trevor Francis was playing then for Birmingham. He had a decent side and we drew at Sheffield Wednesday. And then the second game was at Manchester City. The old main road um, ground. The old yeah. main road, you know, and 40 or 1,000 people there watching the game and literally went to extra time. And extra time, we literally seconds to go. It was across from Jimmy Conway on the right-hand side and John Mitchell, was centre forward, got his knee to it, not his foot, his knee, and kneed the ball in the back of the net. By the time we got to the halfway line, the whistle blew for full time. You had two old codgers and all these young lads, you know, like, and we were going to play in a cup final. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. You know, it was a wonderful story, uh, but it was ridiculous that these two old boys, more old, two years older than me, uh, you know, were going to play at Wembley. I mean, what do you remember about the build-up to the cup final? Because in those days, the players had to do, used to do a lot of things, didn't they, to try and, yes. to try and cash in, shall we say, yep. on the cup final? Well, the thing about it, which we didn't know, on, on the, we walked through uh, when we were going to go the day before, you know, to a hotel in North London, uh, and we walked around Fulham, you know, with the supporters. They all had the black and white, you know, paintings and everything else on and stuff. And off we get to the hotel, and literally... 
on the Friday night, we're watching a film in the hotel, you know, private. Mm -hmm. um, uh, David Niven was in it. I can't remember the name of it. David Niven was in the film. And literally, a knock on the on the wall, boom, through the door comes a little fella, about five foot three, glasses, and he said, uh, Bobby Moore? So Moore looked over and he said, uh, it's private in here, mate. Sorry, can't come. Well, we thought he was wanted all yeah, sure, or something sure. like that. And he came out, he said, it's me. So this fellow went out. He said, well, there's a writ, he says, for you to appear in court tomorrow. This is the morning of the cup final um, because uh, you're not wearing uh, our boots. And he went round and Mr Mallory, yeah, that's me. Bom and that was the same. A writ. A writ to, to appear in court on the morning of the match uh, at Wembley. Literally, uh, Stocky who hadn't told us, had signed an agreement with a boot company beforehand and not told any of the players that he'd done it. So he'd put the money in his bin uh, and we never got a penny. So we sent Les Strong, who'd got injured in the semi-final, to uh, whatever court it was in London. He came back, he says, good news and bad news. He said, the good news is the game can go on. And this was now about 12 o'clock midday. Right. You know, with a three o'clock kickoff. He said, but the bad news is we've got to wear the boots. So we had to paint a different white line on all our boots to clarify, you know... This, this is not the perfect bit, preparation for a match, is it? With the, with the pitch being slightly watered as well, the white paint started to flow off it after a period of time. But we got through it, you know, and that was what it was. Sadly enough, you know, we lost the game 2-0. Yeah, I mean, um, you were in the game for an hour, yeah. um, although West Ham were the better team. We, yeah, we, we, we'd be honest about that. Yeah. And then two... Uh, Two goals by Alan Taylor, um, with yeah. balls coming back off Peter Meller. Mm -hmm. um, but it must have been a great, a great feeling for you. But and, and Alan, you know, imagine this happening now. The footballer of the year, this was before the PFA had their awards. The footballer of the year is you, Alan Mullery, a second division footballer. Mm. I mean, it's just not. It's beyond the, the realms of possibility now. It's uh, yeah, something I'll always you know regard as probably. You know, playing in in World Cups, playing in Cup Finals, playing Europa Cup Finals, and things like this regard as probably uh, the greatest achievement I ever made because to be a second division footballer at that time and get every football reporter literally in the country voting for me because we got to a cup final as well. Um, and there were a lot of other people involved, as we know. And I'm sure yeah. you've been to the Football of the Year dinner Absolutely. since. And when you see it, they put, for those who've never been lucky enough to go, they put a very large portrait mm. of each of the winners around the room. And when you look at the history of English Premier League football, top-level football unfolding around you, and there's your... You must feel something... And, and you get it on the menu as well. You know, when you're looking down, the yeah. Stanley Matthews, the Billy Wright, the Tommy Lawtons, all these people. Down you know, to the Cantonars and in the middle. Absolutely. There you are. And there I am, you know, in alphabetical order going down. Um, yeah, it's something I'd like to think the, the grandkids, you know, when I've, I've gone, will will enjoy it in years to come and the stories that are going on, which is absolutely lovely. Alan, you finished your playing career in July of 1976. I mean, uh, you didn't get to be full of manager. And you went on to manage Brighton. Hmm. Uh, did the Fulham thing just fade away, or no? It didn't really, Dan. I mean, when I went in to uh, accept the job, you know, and Stocky turned just he said, "Well, I don't want to give it up now." So uh, I'd already said that I was going to finish playing. You know, when I was thirty-four, uh, and that's what it did. So I went home. Uh, and when I picked up my uh, my youngest one, he was only about four at the time, uh, from kindergarten. Came back, and the phone rang at home. Uh, and it was a, a guy called Ken Calver who was the uh, secretary of Brighton Hove Albion. And he said to me, Alan Murray, I said, yes. He said, I'm Kim Calvary. He said, um, the chairman, Mike Bamber, would like you to come down and sort out being the manager of Brighton Football Club. And I thought Peter Taylor was still there, but he'd resigned the night before. 
so I get in the car, down I go, and I chat to the chairman about this and about that. And, uh, you know, I mean, I wanted to take it because they just missed out the previous season on yep. getting promotion from the third division. and uh, But I didn't know anything, basically, about the football club. You know, I'd never played at Brighton. No. Uh, I didn't know any of the players because they were in the third division. Um, so it was a bit difficult, but I accepted it immediately. You know, I'm a princely sum of 7500 a year, you know, and I thought, yeah, get it, no bonuses, but go and do it. Is this the days before... <laughs> Coaching badges and all that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you were just was able it? to be yeah, a player. Yeah, I went straight from being a player you know, to being a coach. Um, I mean, I was there were probably a couple of players, well, three or four players there that were probably a couple of years younger than me. So the experience that I'd had at top level and things like that counted because they'd been playing at lower levels of football. But I got stuck into the job immediately, and um, I went down to the university where they were training, and uh, I said, "Look, I don't know any of the players to the coach." I said, "But put on three half an hour games." And I'll see what I should, you know, change or not change. And after an uh, hour and a half, I just changed a few people around, and and, and it looked good. It looked good. And at, at the time, they had some very, very good players. A, a young kid, most of all, who was a star in the, in the, the the leagues before, was a young kid called Peter Ward. Um, I mean, in the first season I had him, I think he got 30, 37 goals, which was, you know, I mean, he was like Roy the Rovers. Every time he got the ball, he'd score. Um, and this little fella, he weighed about uh, ten and a half stone dripping wet. And in the third division, he was absolutely magnificent. For the second part of that, you know, we bought players, they came in. I mean, in that period of time of five years I was there, Dan, can you believe it? I spent nearly three million pounds. I mean, just think what that's worth today. Oh, you make extraordinary amount of money. Amazing. But it worked. You know, and we got promotion to the first division well, as well. You, you got promotion in 76, uh, 77, in your first yep. se season there, into the rotation to second tier. Yep. Um, you just missed out the following year. Goal difference. To whom? Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't Spurs, believe it. Spurs were having their holiday in the second division, weren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we played them at the Goldstone and we beat them 3-1 down there. I remember Glenn not really liking what Paul Clark did to him that day, to be fair. Uh, and then we drew 0-0 up at Tottenham, uh, which was, uh, you know, good results for me. Uh, but we missed out on goal difference. Southampton and, and Tottenham went up. We stayed down, and I made the most Bolton as well. Yeah, yes, right, Bolton yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And I made the most stupid remark to fifteen, twenty thousand people on the pitch at Brighton last game of the season. I said, "Well, Tottenham have got the chance. Believe me, we are going to win this next season and go up to the first division." And I thought, "You absolute idiot! You know, you're saying this now because in, in uh, you know being emotional, as hated well. emotion. You're a very emotional and, guy. Yeah. And basically, we did." We got promotion the following season, you know, to the first division. I mean, you've taken a team, therefore, and you're, and you're a, a rookie manager. You've taken them from the third level to the first level. Where does that rank in all the things you've done in Absolutely football? Absolutely brilliant. I mean, I can say, I think, of all the things, uh, as, a, as a player, you do what you do. Uh, you know, we were talking Pat earlier on, you know, one of the great goalkeepers of the world. Uh, but when you've got to manage other players... Uh, you know, uh, you can give them all the information you've had over your uh, experience, you know, playing and doing this and doing that. But if they don't take that on board on the pitch, then you're 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 not very successful. But they all the players took it on board, you know, and did all the things I wanted them to do. And we brought some good players in, and it, it made it worthwhile to achieve that. Because in those days, I wasn't just looking after the first team. I was looking after the tea ladies. I was looking after the cleaners. I did all the contracts, you know, with money. And I, I just had to get permission from the chairman, say yes or no, you know, whether we could offer people this and offer people that. So I was doing all that, which doesn't take place today. 
Oh, it, it, it's an amazing achievement, and you built a very good um, Brighton side in the Premier League that it didn't do particularly well. Um, Mark Lawrence was in the squad, Gary Stevens, Steve Foster, John Gregory, Neil McNabb. You had lots of good players there. Michael Robinson, Andy Ritchie. Yeah, many of them <coughs> going on to become international players. footballers. Yeah. yeah. Um, why did you? Well, um, uh, it's again extraordinary. I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you resigned as Brighton manager because they sold one of your players. Yep. But it's a matter of principle. Well, no one ever resigns anymore. My, uh, Mark Lawrenson was, was probably the best player I ever bought. He was absolutely outstanding. You got him from Preston, I, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got him from Preston. He was a 19-year-old. Yeah. And literally, uh, a week before the end of the season, we got promotion. Uh, I was going to go up to uh, the PFA dinner on the Thursday before the cup final. And the chairman came into my office and he said to me, he said, I need £400,000. He said, by Tuesday. I said, fine. I said, I'll get it for you. He said, well, how are you going to get it? I said, I'll sell Lawrenson. I said, I've been offered a million pounds, I said, from five football clubs every week and turn them down. He said, well, I need it badly. I said, OK, I'll sell him. So I phoned Ron Atkinson up. He was at West Brom at that time, but he was going to Manchester United. And I said, Ron, I said, who do you want to be your first signing? He said, the boy Lawrenson. I said, you got him. I said, but the deal is £400,000 I want immediately by Tuesday and I want the pick of any two players at Manchester United. I said, because you've been offering a million pound, even at West Brom. He said, you've got a deal. Went down to the PFA, didn't I? Shook hands with Ron, you know, to do the deal. Got a phone call on Friday night from the chairman. He was in London, ready for the cup final the following day. And he said, forget the deal with Manchester United. He said, I'm selling him to Liverpool. I said, no, you're not. I said, I've sold him to Ron Atkinson and I've got two players coming from Manchester United. Mm -hmm. He said, no, he said, I want to do it. So put the phone down. So Saturday Who, who were the two players, Alan? Uh, I, I didn't even think about it then. I just oh. wanted two of their best players. I was going to go through the lot and this and that. Right. But then the chairman phoned me up and he said, basically, that's it, you know, put the phone down. Saturday after the cut, finally phones me up. He said, come down to my place on a Sunday morning. Uh, he lived at Hurstbury Point that way. I drove down about half past seven in the morning. His wife was cooking breakfast on the Sunday morning. She said, do you want some breakfast, Alan? I said, no, thank you, Gene. Uh, and the chairman sat across, you know, drinking his coffee and this and that. He said, um, I said, what's this all about? I said, we're changing now. All these things I've done. I said, I got you your 400 grand. I said, why do you want to sell him to Liverpool? He said, and his words were, there's many, many people in Living Brighton that are multimillionaires. He said, I'm one of them. He said, but not one of those people have ever sold a footballer for a million pounds. So I looked at him, I said, well, your ego's got very, very big, Mr. Chairman, now you know we're doing this. And I said, the thing I'm worried about now is that you might want to pick the team instead of me. And he said, I've been thinking about that. I said, well, I think about it more often if I was you, and I shook him by the hand and walked out the door. And that was my, my life at Brighton. You weren't out of work for long. You were, no. You got a job at Charlton a week yeah. later because you're you know, mm. a highly rated manager. I, I, I was offered a job at West Brom as well, which was a very, very strange story. I mean, if we can do it, sure, I'd, I'd love sure. to do it. I get a phone call. I go away on two weeks' holiday with a wife and the kids. Get a phone call from West Brom. Could I apply for the job? Because Ron had left. So I get up to, to West Brom, chat to their directors. Uh, what sort of house do you live in? Where do you live? Blah, blah, blah. Kids go to private school. This, but yeah, 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 yeah. Lovely. We'll get your brochures of houses here. We've got schools. We do blah, blah, blah. See you in two weeks. Off I go. Two weeks later, I get a phone call, go up. Final meeting between Ronnie Allen and me. We're the final two. 
So in I go. They give me all the brochures on the houses, give me all the school brochures and things like private schools. And so give us 15 minutes, we'll be out with you. I go and sit outside. And the, uh, the lad who was the secretary at that time was a lad called Tony Rance. And he came out and Ronnie Allen was sitting there and he went in for about half an hour. Ex-player, ex-manager, you know, good player as well, Ron. Uh, he came out after that. He was white. He was absolutely ashen white. And I said, "You okay, Ronnie?" He said, "No." He said, "I've had a big shock in there, Alan." He said, "You know, I've been grilled." He said, "I can't believe it. I was a player at this club," and I thought to myself, "Well, that's bad luck, mate. You know, it's mine." Fella came out. Tony Rance, the secretary, he shook me by the hand. He said, "I'm sorry, Alan." He said, "Ronnie's got the job." I didn't know. What, I just turned around and said, "Congratulations, Ron." Got on a on a, a in a taxi, flight back to Gatwick. Got home about eight o'clock that night. And the missus said to me, "She said, there's been a fellow called Brian Boundy phoning you all the time.' You know, who, I said, "Well, he's on the board of West Brom." So I had to phone him back. So I said, "Mr. Boundy," I said, it's Alan Mullery." He said, "Alan," he said, "We made a terrible mistake." What? I said, "What do you mean you made a mistake?" He said, "We told the Tony Rance to go out until Alan he got the job and he gave it to the wrong Alan." Oh no! That's as true as I move from this chair. I said, what are you going to do about it? He said, we can't do anything. He said, the chairman's having his picture taken on the pitch with Ronnie Allen. Ronnie lasted, I think, about six months. Very poor. And got the sack. Yeah, didn't go well from at all. So he gave it to the wrong Allen. You got a job at Charlton. Yep. And then, I got, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at your, the following <coughs> this, Alan, you worked at Charlton, Crystal Palace, um, QPR. Um, you had a number of jobs in and around the London football scene. And... They were never as successful as, no. as you would want it, I guess, or as you were at Brighton. Why was that? Uh, I, I don't think I had the authority I had at, um, at Brighton, to be honest, uh, Danny. Um, and the quality of player. You know, all those, having at QPR, you know, the other chances. Charlton, I mean, they had some, I, I, I think I bought in about seven or eight free transfer players. But that's not going to get you anywhere if you're bringing in people of that level. They just want to survive. Uh, when I went to, to uh, Crystal Palace, I mean, it was an absolute nightmare. They were they wouldn't even pay the uh, the window cleaner bills. I mean, that's how bad it was there. And they wanted, and, and then uh, when I went to help Barnet out for a, a stage like that as well, um, you know, they were so badly off, you know, with things. And basically, I think the people that give me those jobs thought I was a miracle worker. Yeah. And believe me, no manager's a miracle worker. If you've got good players, you can become successful. If you've got poor players, you can become a failure quite easily. And that's you, what happened. You replaced Terry Venables at QPR yeah. when he went to Barcelona. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you, of course, they, you're dealing with... Uh, one of the legendary chairman of English football, Jim oh, Gregory. Jim Gre I grew up knowing Jim Gregory. When he had his first uh, wet sh uh, fish shop, you know, Jim. And, uh, oh, I mean, that was a nightmare six months I had with him. He'd pick up the phone at two o'clock in the morning, phone me on a Monday, wherever he was, and he'd say, what's the team for Saturday? I said, Jim, I don't know yet. I said, we're going to go in and work. Yeah. I said, do some work. He said, and I'll tell you on Friday. I want to know what it is now. Tell me the team now, or, or I'm, I'm going to sack you. I said, Jim, boom, he put the phone down. And this went on for six months. It drove me absolutely crackers, uh, you know. And I was in in a way. How, how, how did it come to an end then? Well, it came to an end where we'd look, we'd got knocked out of Europe that season. Venner had got them to Europe, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, and we lost, uh, I think it was uh, four nil in uh, in Zagreb. Um, and we were, we beat them six two. We we played at Highbury because they wouldn't play on the on the uh, surface at QPR. So we beat them six two with a four goal lead. 
And the first thing I said to him, look, when you're going to Yugoslavia, hey, this is a place where it's very, very difficult to play. And we got there two and a half hours before the game and there were already 50,000 people in the stadium that started pelting us with stones and everything else and everything else. And I said, the one thing you mustn't do in Europe, being there, experience it myself, is concede early. We conceded after three minutes, Brilliant. one nil down. Don't give anything away to half time. Three minutes before half time, we conceded another one. We're two nil down. We're still two in front. Remember, let's not concede early. Five minutes after the second half, we, we go three nil down, and then we got beat four nil. And literally two weeks later, played Stoke City, um, went to, into the ballroom. We beat Stoke two nil. Looked across at the chairman. He said, "Come down to my uh, my room." He had a suite there, Jim Gregory, and he looked at me. He shook me by the hand. He said, "Arrivederci." I said, my little Italian that I know, Jim, says that's goodbye. He said, yeah, you got sack. And that was it. I was out the door. We've heard about how your managerial career um, you know, came and went. Um, in 1993, you were given a, another chance. You went to Malaysia to coach their armed forces team. Um, I, I, um, how on earth did that come about and what happened? A guy came to me one day and he said, what were you doing in your life? I said, well, not a great deal, to be fair. He said, you fancy coming to Malaysia? He said, and coaching the um, the army there. I said, well, what's it like? He said, well, it's absolutely amazing. You know, weather's fantastic. He said, you know, bring your wife out and blah, 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 blah. So I went over on a recce, you know, a week before we were sort of going to decide this and uh, met the uh, the army, the generals and everything else like that, you know. And it all seemed very, very good. Basically, so good, so good. Uh, so it gave me this contract. It was very lucrative, actually, the contract, mm-hmm. uh, going there. And I said, well, I'll do three months, you know, and look after them, which I did. We were there for about three weeks, my wife and I. And then I went to the bank to get some money out, and there was no money in there. It had gone. So I tried to get in touch with this fella. couldn't find him anywhere. So I got, got to the, uh, the army, and I said, look, I said, fellas, turn me over. I said, uh, hey, you know, I can't live here without being paid. I said, and you're not paying him and blah, 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 blah. And literally got a, a you know, plane back. Uh, so I was there for about three weeks. Uh, but it, well, I mean, it was lovely to coach people there at that time. But, I mean, he was a bit of a crook, the fellow that took me out there. Yeah. So that means that you, you came back. I mean, I've read it in your autobiography. I'm not, I'm not treading on any <coughs> stuff that you haven't said here personally. Um, you you and, your, and your wife found yourself, June, um, Increasingly in debt. Yeah. And tell me what you so how how bad that got and what you decided to do. Well, it got to the stage when we were out there, you know, of of literally having to choose a sandwich or a Coca Cola. That's how bad it was. Came back home and literally um, not having any work for a period of time, savings that we'd had were basically gone. Uh, we lived in a, a you know a fair sized house in those days, um, but literally nothing was coming in. Um, I then got involved with Sky when they first started, uh, which was, you know, uh, very good. But yeah. it got to the stage where it wasn't enough to, to cover all the things we were doing and got to the stage when um, we felt as though, you know, all the success we'd had, you know, as a family and things like that, that it was just gone out the window and there was nothing there. Um, I would sit in the study at home. Uh, just staring at walls and this went on for about a month extremely depressed because all I'd ever done was play football from when I left school the phone stopped ringing uh, when you were in management or playing the phone's forever everlasting ringing and uh, it was an absolute nightmare and we sat one day there and said you know if we are not here for a period of time 
then you know the house would go to the kids and things like that and one day we just went upstairs we lay on the bed my wife fell asleep and I used to have a, a shotgun in those days and literally I got the shotgun out I filled the two barrels with it and literally put the gun next to her body um, and, the, and then as if something changed in me yeah something were you, were you planning to kill the two oh yeah 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 we were planning to commit suicide you know um, and I thought you know what am I doing you know it, I know it's bad I know it's awful but surely there's got to be something else and didn't do it and cried my eyes out at that stage you know even thinking about it you know with the kids as well um, who were both married at that time and I thought this is you know absolutely awful and the most amazing thing is from then on my wife started to go out um, and many years at like running each year we'd gone to uh, a Christians in sport dinner and my wife sat next to Cliff Richard one night and she said to him she said you know all this Christianity she said you know what happened to you when you became a Christian he told her the story and he said to her you know that's all you want to do if you believe in God he said that's what it is and basically when she got home she didn't tell me anything about it I was still in the coma of, of uh, you know being depressed and uh, she got down on her knees and went to a church and when she came home she used to go out every Monday night for about oh, six seven weeks and I didn't even know where she was going I didn't really want to know where she was going uh, and she came home one night and she said uh, right I better tell you now she said I've been going to a Christian meeting every Monday she said and I've accepted Jesus in my life she said I've, I've got this big feeling that you know I should do that in this uh, and she said I've got some good news and bad news she said the good news is I've accepted Jesus in my life I said the bad news is I've enrolled you for the next course and I went crackers, didn't I? I started throwing things about the house and this and that. <clears throat> so I went the following week, just out of courtesy of her. She gave me a Bible and I went and I knocked on this fellow's door and he opened the door and he gave me a big hug. I'd never met the fellow before. I thought, this is a bit funny, like a fellow giving me a big hug. Went inside and I was going to wreck the place, actually, you know, verbally, and uh, listened to all these people talking. But there was one fellow that was worse than me. So I didn't have to ask all the questions and this and that. But the funny thing is, as I was driving home, I felt I had to go back again the following week. And this went on for about 10 or 12 weeks. And then the fellow at the, at the end of it asked me, now I had all this strife and all this, you know, business going on behind me. Well, Alan, let's be fair. If you're, if you're contemplating killing yourself and your wife, you are in a place where, mm. you know, you have got stuff going on that needs to be dealt with. Absolutely. And Danny, that got me out of it. And I accepted Jesus in my life. And were you a spiritual or religious person before this, my, my My parents were, were Catholic. Mm -hmm. My mum always had a, a cross hanging on the side of the bed. But, but you know. not, not for you particularly? Not for me, no. I mean, I couldn't believe it. But now I'd hit rock bottom to the stage and I needed something in my life. And my wife couldn't give it to me, bless her, because she'd been in the same state. Uh, our kids couldn't give it to us. Uh, so something else had to happen. And when I did this, this night, and, and accepted Jesus in my life, I can't remember driving home. You know, and when I got in the house, I sat in a chair, and my wife said to me, she said, you've accepted Jesus in your life, haven't you? She said, you're a different person. And I said, I did. And from that day on, you know, I'd been a Christian, uh, which is now, what, 25, nearly coming up 30 years, I suppose. Um, I'm a great believer. Uh, I love going to church. I love the people of the church. I love my family as much as that, uh, exactly the same. And 
I just became a much more peaceful man than I had been, you know, when we were in dire straits. And thank goodness I never pulled the trigger. Well, th- you know, thank goodness for all of us. And uh, as well as the Christianity, of course, your life has turned round in a very good way. Um, in that, um, you, I know you you, spe- you were on te- you were on television for many many years uh, doing. I think um, the, the, yourself and Frank McClinton, one or two others, established how we now do football punditry yep. in this country. Um, I know you have a mad thing where you go and teach people to play football and uh, talk about football on cruise liners. Yep. You're on the after dinner circuit. Yeah. Um, uh, well, from that very dark place you were describing, clearly your life has, has become much better again. Absolutely, Dan. I mean, you know, it's. Um, I wouldn't want to change it now because I'm still involved. It's so good to be around people that are involved in this business of football. It's a lovely business. I mean, I've loved it from the first minute I started doing it, you know, when I was very, very young, and I'm still doing it. So I've been blessed to be able to do it, to be able to come and talk to you like I am you know, this evening and and thoroughly enjoy it because it gives me not only satisfaction, but if somebody can see that that's not the end of it when you're really in that trouble, then that could be a compliment to them. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. 